in order to navigate the world as it is, not as we wish it to be. We need to be able to strengthen our capability with the full range of this beautiful, messy, (laughs) difficult human experience. And really the reality of life is that tough emotions are part of our contract with life. We don't get to have a meaningful career or raise a family or leave the world a better place without stress and discomfort. That's Susan David, this week on The Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. So much of what determines how we navigate the world, how we inhabit our environments, how we choose and pursue our careers, our ability to successfully cultivate and maintain our relationships, how we parent, really how and why we do everything we do is in so many ways dictated not by rationality or logic or intellect, but instead by emotions. And it is this landscape of our emotions that truly drives, often in mysterious ways we don't consciously understand, our decisions, our impulses, our reactions, pretty much everything we do. And commonly, if you're (laughs) at least anything like me, uh, to our peril. I can't tell you how many times I've made a bad decision impulsively and then wondered, you know, why did I do that? What can be learned from this mistake? How can I better understand myself and the hidden impulses that drive me? In other words, how can I be more emotionally agile, which is a term that's going to come up a lot today in this conversation, such that I can make better future decisions and simply navigate my world in a more mindful and conscious way rather than in the reactive and impulsive manner that always seems to lead me astray. My name is Rich Roll. How you doing? I am your host. And today we explore this terrain with Susan David, who I think it's fair to say is both a pioneer and one of the world's leading thinkers in this field. Susan is an award-winning psychologist on faculty at Harvard Medical School. She is the CEO of a company called Evidence-Based Psychology, as well as the co-founder of the Institute of Coaching, which is an affiliate of Harvard Medical School. She's on the scientific advisory boards of Thrive Global and Virgin Pulse, and she is the author of a massively best-selling book, a number one Wall Street Journal bestseller entitled, you guessed it, Emotional Agility, which is a very compelling read that walks us through the psychological skills critical to thriving in times of complexity and change. In addition, Susan is a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. And she's a sought after speaker and consultant with clients that include the World Economic Forum, the United Nations, Google, Microsoft, NASDAQ, and many, many others. Uh, If Susan and her work are brand new to you, I suggest you start with her TED Talk, it's entitled The Gift and Power of Emotional Courage. This was my first introduction to her and her work, and it's what inspired me to reach out to her on Twitter and get her on the show. It's quite moving, and although it was published online only about a month ago, it already has almost 2 million views. Uh, A couple more things I want to say about this amazing and lovely person before we dive into the conversation, but first, a couple announcements. The first of which is... I spent the last year rewriting my first book, my memoir, it's called Finding Ultra, and the brand new updated and revised edition is now available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble in the US and Canada. 
in paperback form, just $7.67 on Amazon, which is amazing, as well as on Audible in audiobook format. And ebook Kindle versions are coming soon if they're not available already. Uh, for my international friends who have been having trouble tracking it down, we have signed copies available on my website at ritual.com. And even if you read the first edition and you enjoyed it, I think you'll get a lot out of this new version. There's about 30 to 40% brand new material. I'm super proud of it. If you want to know more about why I rewrote it and what you can expect to find in this revised edition, you can check out my most recent blog post on my site at richroll.com. And secondly, our new cookbook, The Plant Power Way Italia, is now available for pre-order. Reserve your copy today. And if you're a female, please make sure to check out my second most recent blog post uh, on my site at richroll.com for a chance to win a free spot on our upcoming retreat in Tuscany, May 19th through 26, 2018. It's a $5,000 value. The contest is only open through April 24th, so you got to jump on it now. And uh, those are my two big self-promotional announcements. We're brought to you today by Momentus. Over the last 16 years, I can safely say that I have tried almost every single plant-based protein out there. And I can tell you that most of them are highly processed with tons of additives and or they taste terrible, they're not third-party tested or simply just don't hit the nutritional bullseye with a legit science-supported formula with the appropriate amino acid profile that promotes optimal nutrient absorption, which is all just a long way of saying how enthusiastic I was to be introduced to Momentus's 100% plant-based protein, which solves for all of the above and then some with a precise blend of pea and rice proteins, which yields a complete amino acid profile, tastes great, and has become my go-to to ensure my body is supplied with energy for proper recovery and function. Momentous products are simply the best in the industry, which is why they're used by over 90% of NFL teams, by Olympians, Tour de France champs, and world-class athletes across every sport. With all the BS in the supplement world, I trust Momentus's industry-leading quality standards and quality. Try Momentus for yourself by going to livemomentous.com slash richroll for 20% off plant-based protein and all of their top-of-the-line products. That's L-I-V-E-M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S dot com slash richroll for 20% off. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built-to-move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in Fleetfoot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. 
from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by Seed. Gut health is all the rage. There's good reason for that. I've probably devoted, I don't know, at least a dozen episodes of this podcast to the many, many crucial ways the microbiome contributes to your overall well-being or lack thereof, and to the many diet and lifestyle protocols we should all adopt to promote gut health, from fermented food to fiber and everything in between, including, of course, the importance of supplementing with a probiotic. And the one that I have come to trust far beyond the shenanigans of the supplement world is Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. It's the most solid, science-based, and rigorously evidence-backed probiotic and prebiotic on the market. Formulated for optimal digestion, gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, skin health. In fact, my 16-year-old daughter has been using it to clear up a significant acne issue, and it's been wonderful, as well as many other systemic benefits. Like I said, I've been taking it daily, personally, for years. I love it. My body loves it. And right now, for our listener community, Seed is offering 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Visit seed.com slash richroll and use the code richroll25 to redeem this offer. That's seed.com slash richroll or code richroll25. Okay, Susan David. Uh, This is a conversation about Susan's life growing up in apartheid South Africa and how this experience impacted how she sees the world and informs the work that she does today as this pioneering psychologist. It's also about how and why our emotions, our everyday thoughts and stories, things that we often hide from the world and, and even at times from ourselves, are really the single most important determinant of life success. Uh, it's a conversation about how our impulse to deny or avoid uncomfortable emotions does not serve us because it really is these tough emotions, emotions that we all experience that are really the price we pay for a meaningful life, for a life of more conscious agency. And ultimately, it's about how developing this thing called emotional agility, which is essentially mastery over our emotions, our thoughts, our stories, can benefit not just ourselves, but every generation, even helping the youngest among us become better problem solvers, engaged learners, and less likely to develop things like anxiety and depression. Very excited to share this conversation. Have I droned on long enough? I think I have. Shall we talk to Susan? Let's do just that. Ready to go. Susan, thank you for coming out here. I'm so grateful to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I'm sorry you had an Uber driver that left you with a bumpy ride, but hopefully <laughs> your stomach will settle. My stomach is settled. It's yeah, fine. good. Well, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Um, I've been wanting to talk to you for a while. Ironically, I just had a phone call today with my friend Jonathan Fields, mm-hmm. and I know he was on. You were on his show, and yes. I, I adore him. So he yes, was like, he wonderful. said to say hello. Oh, hello, Jonathan. Yes. So I'm excited because one of my favorite obsessions is the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves and how 
these stories become powerful predictors of future behavior. Yes. And really can define our lives and really set us on a trajectory to live reactively and not as intentionally or as mindfully as we should. And this is the sweet spot of your research. Absolutely. And this incredible new book that is going crazy right now. And this TED talk that just went up a week ago that already has, you said, I know it has over a million views and you said there's a snippet that has 19 million views right now. There's an excerpt of it. And in one week, the TED talk has had Mm. a million views and the excerpt has had 19 million views. But beyond the metrics, the incredible notes and emails from people are just indescribable Mm -hmm. um, in the way they're connecting with it. So I just feel so encouraged and, you know, doing any of these kind of things is a huge investment. And so when you feel that it's had meaning, it's great. I would imagine that you had to know, I mean, after right, you, you published this article that was the foundation of, of what would become this book. And what was in, it was in the Harvard Business Journal yeah. and that went off like wildfire. So that was sort of proof of concept, like, okay, people are really responding to this. Yes. So you knew there was an interest and an audience and, and, and really more than that, like a need, like everybody can relate to this issue because it's something I think we all struggle with on the spectrum. Yes. Uh, both from my personal experience and then from my research, I started to become aware of how so often we experience things in society. Society tells us to think positive or to be happy or we get these messages. And I started to become aware firstly of how sometimes the messages that we get are Mm -hmm. unhelpful. And then also to your point earlier of how our thoughts, emotions, and the stories that we tell ourselves can start driving behaviors in ways that are not connected with who we want to be in the world. And Mm so I very much see this at work. I see this in parenting in our personal lives. And so I felt like I wanted to write a book that really started to convey both the ideas of emotional rigidity, which is when we reactive on autopilot, but also what are the key components of emotional agility Mm -hmm. where we are able to be intentional and effective. So before we even parse the differences between agility and rigidity, maybe we should just define what, we talk, what we're talking about when we're talking about um, the emotional landscape. So my work really uh, traverses emotions. Um, so both the physical sensations and the physiological mm-hmm. sensations and also the feelings. So when we then construct something that says, I am sad because of something, Uh, the feeling, the thought that we might have, self-doubts, and the story. So my work traverses this whole idea that our inner world, our thoughts, our emotions, and our stories often drive every aspect of how we love, how we live, Mm -hmm. how we parent, and how we lead. And yet so much of the writing that exists on success is effectively writing that's either about set goals and achieve them Mm -hmm. or about the landscape of what success looks like. But there's very little that focuses, I think, in an evidence-based way, not to say that there isn't any, but in an evidence-based and research-based way about what it takes internally Mm -hmm. in the way we deal with our thoughts, our emotions, and our stories. Right, And, and I think that begins with really understanding that as these emotions well up inside of us, as they do, that they are part and parcel of what it means to be human. They're entirely natural. And the starting point is really to discern the fact that 
you have a choice when they arise as to how you behave that you don't need to necessarily self-identify with them to the extent that they become that predictor of behavior that leads you astray. Is Absolutely. That yeah. So the, fo- the first uh, point that you make, which is that they're naturally occurring experiences in us as human beings is one of the first things that I explore in both my TED talk and the book, which is that as a society, what has started to happen is that these naturally occurring experiences that really are incredibly important signals to ourselves in terms of how we're doing, what's working for us in our lives, uh, what's missing in our lives. What started to happen is that emotions either feel dirty, that they're seen Mm. as being disruptive, feminine, irrational, illogical, or what happens is we receive this narrative from society that says to us that there are good emotions and bad emotions. The good emotions are the joy and the happiness and you should chase happiness. And the bad emotions are anger, grief, sadness. And so one of the most critical aspects I think of my work is starting to really challenge this idea Mm -hmm. that they're good or bad emotions. And to really put out that our emotions have evolved in us as a human species to help us to respond and survive. And when we start getting into the space where we either block or suppress or push aside emotions, we actually stop ourselves from being our most effective, successful mm-hmm. beings. Yeah, this idea that there's a duality is a, a socially projected notion yeah. that perpetuates that vicious cycle of, of you know, unhealth, I guess. Because if you feel if you feel sad and then you know like, well, that's a bad emotion, then you're going to then feel shame or guilt for having that. And you're just digging that hole even deeper and deeper. Yeah, that's that's exactly. So it's this fascinating thing where, you know, we have in psychology, we sometimes talk about uh, type one and type two. And type one is where you start saying, I feel sad. And type two is when you start having an emotion or judgment about the emotion. Mm-hmm. So you say, I'm sad that I'm sad. I shouldn't be sad. I push it aside. And in some of my work, I, for example, did a survey of 70,000 people and I found that a third of us, which is a remarkable number, a third of us treat our normal emotions, emotions like sadness or anger or even grief as being bad. And so mm-hmm. we push them aside. Or if we don't do it to ourselves, we often do it to people we love, our children, we jump to solution. Um, and I, th- I think a critical aspect of well-being is moving beyond the struggle with our emotions into the other space, which is, this is how I'm feeling. What do I need to do about this context mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. I'm in? Right, to detach from the self-judgment that usually is accompanying that. Yeah, the the radical acceptance of all of our emotions, mm-hmm. our, our grief, our sadness, our anger, is a hallmark and, and a cornerstone of resilience and a cornerstone of effective relationships. That's not to say that because we feel angry, we have a right to be angry and we should act on our anger or because we feel wronged, we have been wronged. But rather what's at the core of my work is this idea that our emotions contain signposts to things that we care about. Mm -hmm. They're these flashing lights. You know, if I feel guilty as a parent, it doesn't mean that I should be guilty, but it does mean that there's a value often that sits beneath that emotion, that I value presence and connectedness with my children. Mm -hmm. 
and that I'm not feeling enough of it. I'm not mm-hmm. experiencing enough of it. So instead of judging the emotion, if we can rather be open-hearted and accepting and compassionate of it, we can start moving into the space where we are able to discern values that are underneath it. Right. I like the idea that the emotion really sheds light on the extent to which you're invested in that value. So that guilt reaction really just reaffirms to you that that impulse to be a good parent is is valuable to you, right? Yes. And that's almost, that's an affirming way to perceive what you would ordinarily, you know, feel lousy about. That's exactly. Right. And then and then we start being able to make tweaks or changes or shifts that bring us towards those values. Because the way that I think of values is values are often seen as these abstract ideas, these, mm-hmm. these things that are, you know, on walls in offices and mission statements in businesses where values are packaged in with it. And so values can often seem these very abstract ideas, but I see values as being qualities of action. So what I mean by that is every day, every day we have opportunities to either bring ourselves towards our values. If you value health, for instance, you get to make a choice that's either towards that value, depending on what you choose to put in your mouth, or away from that value. Mm -hmm. So we have these choices every day and they're qualities of action. And having the sense of what our values are that gets informed by our emotions is hugely protective of um, social contagion, of, uh, you know, going down a path where you then go, how did I get here? I didn't want to be here. How am I in this career? Um, And they also allow us to shape our lives in really meaningful ways. Mm -hmm. And by social contagion, you mean that impulse to compare ourselves to our peers? Or what do you mean specifically by that? Yeah, so there's social contagion. There's this fascinating uh, research on social contagion. And the idea behind it is that we catch behaviors and we catch emotions from other people without even realizing it. So for instance, we've all had that experience where we get in an elevator and someone's on their phone. And we, without even thinking about it, take out our phone and we on our phone as well. So if we extend that, if you, for instance, are on an airplane and you're trying to lose weight, for example, and your seatmate buys candy, even if you do not know that person, what the research shows is that your chance of buying candy increases by 70%. 70%? 70%. Oh, my God. So now extend this out. What we know is that large-scale epidemiological studies show that if people even within – that we don't even know, mm-hmm. two or three degrees of separation from us, uh, get divorced or put on weight, it significantly cre- increases our chances – of getting divorced or putting on weight. So you're like, oh my goodness, what is actually going on here? But we've all experienced that. We go out for dinner and someone orders dessert and so we order dessert. So what starts to happen is in so many ways without realizing it, we start wanting things that other people want. We start comparing, we start normalizing behaviors. And we see this at work. Everyone's stressed. We get stressed. Mm -hmm. We see it at home. How do you protect against that? How do you stay the course of what is important to you. And there's just this wonderful, wonderful work that shows that what is called values affirmation. So even spending 10 minutes thinking Mm -hmm. about who is the parent that I want to be, who is the leader that I want to be, starts to bring those values front of mind and actually protects us from the social contagion. Right. So, excuse me, a couple observations on that. The first thing is, is that 
so much of your, I mean, this, this idea of values is really at the foundation of everything because it creates this cascading effect on behaviors down the line, but it requires maintaining your, like a sense of clarity about what those values are and keeping them front of mind, right? As a driving force. So I would, I would presume that requires some practice and some effort to always be like, okay, well, what are my values and what am I doing and how do, how do my actions align or, or, or not align with what I'm doing presently or what I plan to do? And then secondarily, how do you distinguish values from goals? So, um, so the first thing that I would say is I think that, you know, values are foundational here, but in order to even start understanding our values, we need to be able to be in a space with ourselves, with our emotions, with our being that is not in struggle, mm-hmm. where, where we are able to be accepting and where we are able to be um, compassionate towards our experience because it's out of that that we, we discern we discern our values. Um, the difference that I the just difference that I make between values and goals is that goals have an end point. You know, you might say, um, you know, I want to run this amount, and that mm-hmm. is that is a goal, and it's something that's actually achievable. But a value is actually uh, different. It's a it's a life direction. So you never reach a stage, for instance, where you say, I am a good friend, or I am a good husband, or I am. You, you know, I am a fair person. Rather, a value is a direction that you're trying to move yourself in, mm-hmm. but you never reach a point where you say, you know, I am X. So the right, distinction that I make is that- Intimate yeah. relationships are a core value or, or like sort of, you know, basically uh, fertilizing the intimacy of my relationships is important to me. Yes. And as opposed to, I want to run this far, it would be, I want to live a active, you know, fitness-oriented lifestyle. Right. So when applied to relationships, for instance, you might say um, being connected and intimate and being one of the things that I think about in my relationship, for instance, is I want what I call a clean relationship. That So that, that, that for me is a value. Mm-hmm. It doesn't sound like a value, but what I mean by clean relationship, I mean a relationship in which um, I am able to have conversations that are important and meaningful with my husband without there being a whole lot of baggage about the conversation. So I feel like it's super important for us that we can go to difficult places and have meaningful conversations, whether it's about religion or money or raising children, without there being these kind of no-go zones because Mm -hmm. each of us are bringing our stories. So that's what that might look like. You know, you might have a value about a particular relationship. The way you might enact that value is through particular goals. So you might be saying, you know, I'm going to make sure that a couple of times a week I have good one-on-one time right. with this person. So that's what a goal might look like, which is very tangible, but it's the value that- Right, that yeah. One of the that. examples you used is, you know, when your spouse comes home or your partner, like, don't be on your phone, like put the phone down or make sure that you're not, that you're present and available for whatever exchange. So might. so this is, this is exa- you know, when you were saying earlier about, of course, the values- are these things that when they are front of mind are very, very powerful. We know that values help us to enact and access greater levels of willpower to create effective, sustainable changes in our lives and so on. Um, but of course, they require some cognitive effort because you're always trying to be, you know, what's the, what's the value? And so this is where habits become so important. And this is where work on habits and how to create habits become important. So 
For instance, in the example that you give, if your value is a value about intimacy and connection in your relationship, but you know that you have a particular habit and that habit is to bring your cell phone to the table every night Mm -hmm. and that stops your opportunity. I can see a look of recognition there. (laughs) Yeah, well, I live in the modern world. So, but if that if that focus is something that's important to you, then one of the things that I describe in my book is how we can make values aligned habit changes and right. tweaks. So say, for instance, you come home from work and you always put your keys in a particular drawer. We know that there's a very powerful way of changing habits called piggybacking, mm-hmm. where you've already got a habit that you're engaging in. And so you now piggyback a new habit onto that. And so you put your keys in the drawer and you put your cell phone into the drawer as well. Right, which makes the habit uh, adoption a lot easier. Correct. And so you're not needing to constantly think about, oh my, you know, what is my Mm -hmm. my value here? Because you're making habit changes that are values aligned. What about people? I feel like we skipped way ahead because we're talking about values, which is kind of like the end, but let's stay on this. (laughs) Yeah, because I want to go back into the hook and all that. But on the subject of values, what about the people who don't have clarity about what those values are? You know, the people that are living reactively, that are living in the, that, that are sort of um, prey for the looping of the of the impulses that have yeah. them hooked, that prevent them from seeing clearly what it is that is important to them. So I talk about this a bit in my book and it's not, you know, it's not something that's unusual. Uh, I will often, when I give talks, have people come to me afterwards saying, you know, either this is something I've never thought about or I have had parents who effectively have told me what my values are and I've never really been able to sort through what my own values are. Or I'm so busy or I have been so busy taking care of children or earning a living or, you know, this is nothing. I've just not had the opportunity to, to get through the thought day. I'm trying to get through to the through, through the day. What are some ways that you can start guiding that process? Um, so there are a couple of things that that I think are useful. The first is, if listeners are interested, I've got a free quiz that's available that many hundred thousand people have taken on my website, which is at susandavid.com forward slash learn. And that's got a whole list of different values and what those look like. But some very simple questions, things like, um, you know, when we when we finish at the end of the day, looking back on our day and saying, you know, what today was worthwhile for me? Not what gave me the most fun, what was most exciting, what was most worthwhile because stuff that's fun and exciting isn't necessarily a value. You know, you Mm. can go to clubs night after night and have a lot of fun, but it's not necessarily a value. Um, So things like what is worthwhile and the reason that worthwhile is really important is because there's often a level in worthwhile of even discomfort or effort that's gone into that thing, but has been important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I go through a couple of questions that one can ask oneself to start discerning this. It, it's a really you know important aspect. Another thing that comes up is people say, "What if my values are in conflict?" You know, right. what if this is a very common thing? Like, what if my values are in conflict? What if I value work and value my career, but I also value parent, like being present with my children, for instance? And one of the things that I talk about is this idea that values, you know, values are not these, again, dichotomous things that you either have them or your values are your values. And so the 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 way that I describe this is if you imagine a diamond and you imagine that 
some values are front and center at some times in your life, it doesn't mean that the other facets of the diamond aren't there. Mm -hmm. You know, we are complex in a good way and capable and whole enough as human beings that we are able to have many values, unfortunately, because we are mortal. You know, we can't be in two places at once. And so sometimes we have to make difficult choices. And and so I explore about how these difficult choices that we make, for instance, now, you know, I'm in LA and my husband is at home with my two sick children. So you make choices, but, but the choices, instead of being choices that are laden with conflict and guilt, become choices that have far greater levels of clarity to them because right. they informed values-led rather than emotions-driven. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you being here, you're not at home. Your parent, your 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 husband is at home with your children. So, rather than browbeat yourself for not being home and not being available as a parent, like what can you do while you're here to serve that value? What yeah, actionable things? Yeah. That- can you do? There's this beautiful, there's this beautiful concept in psychology called um, social snacking or psychological snacking, and it's this idea that, you know, it's not it's not either or. I can be in LA right now because it's important for me to be doing the things that I'm doing, and that's consistent with other values mm-hmm. of mine, which is about getting my message out or um, g- connecting with people in particular ways about this. It doesn't mean I don't care about my children. What it does mean is that I can look at the context that I'm in and I can make choices, for instance, that when I talk to them later on tonight that I'm actually present with them. Right. Or so, so, And that's just an example, but these examples apply to our workplace, it applies to our health, it applies to our relationships, that we can have multiple values and they're not necessarily in conflict. Some might be more front and center at particular mm-hmm. times. So let's take a step back. I wanna talk a little bit more in depth about uh, the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves and the kind of emotional rigidity that goes hand in hand with that. But I think in order to properly contextualize it, it's worth kind of going back into your own personal history Mm -hmm. because this is not just an academic pursuit for you. This, This was born out of your own challenges growing up. Yeah, yeah. So I, um, yeah, absolutely. These these ideas are not born out of, you know, the hallowed halls of right. Harvard. Um, I'm at Harvard. I'm at what Harvard. am I going to I'm study? Yeah, you know, exactly. So, so <laughs> even though I am, but yes. really, I mean, my, my life's work mm. really started when I was when I was young. I as you can hear by the accent, I'm not American. I was born as a white South African in to apartheid South Africa. Mm. And so as you grow up, you have this growing sense of horror at the society and what that society is doing to mm-hmm. its fellow human being. And really this is a society that was founded fundamentally on denial because it's denial that makes 50 years of racist legislation possible while people are convincing themselves that they're doing nothing wrong. And so that was that was my context. And from very early on, I started to, you know, ask questions about, you know, what does it take internally to thrive in a world where there is both this beauty and there's this fragility and difficulty. Mm-hmm. 
And then when I was 15 years old, my father, who was 42 at the time, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I remember, and I describe in my TED talk, my mom coming to me and it was on a Friday and my mom saying to me, go and say goodbye to your dad. And me putting my backpack down, it feels like yesterday, you know, me putting my backpack Mm -hmm. down and walking this passage to where my father, the heart of our home, lay dying. And I said goodbye to him and I went off to school. I didn't know that he was going to die that day. And he did. And then the months after that, or even the days after that, I went back to school on the Monday and people don't know how to have these conversations. They don't know how to talk about grief or death. So suddenly, you know, all my school friends dropped the word father from their vocab. You know, mm-hmm. they, they didn't say, what did you do with your father this weekend? It suddenly fathers became non-existent. And I, you know, am growing up in this world where there is this denial going on around me and where we as a culture, even in today's culture, even in America, beyond, we value this idea of I'm okay positivity, Mm -hmm. you know, what you feel attracts everything else to you. And so when people ask me how I was doing, I would say, you know, I'm okay. I'm okay. But in truth, in truth, back home, we were struggling. My father had not been able to keep his small business going. My family was in incredible debt. My mother was raising three children single-handedly. And I started to spiral. You know, I Mm -hmm. really was struggling to deal with this. And then, you know, again, I just remember this so clearly, this eighth grade English teacher handed out notebooks to the class and she said it to the class, but I felt like she was saying it to me. And in in fact, I believe she was saying it to me. She handed out these notebooks and she said, write, you know, tell the truth, Uh, write like no one's reading. And I started this correspondence in this journal that I've kept to this day. And what I realized afterwards is it was that. It was not the I'm okay, you know, positive thinking, et cetera, that actually helped me to be resilient. It was about being able to go up close to my emotions, to understand them, to be able to get insight into them, be compassionate with them that ultimately was the process of healing and resilience. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not anti-happiness, which mm-hmm. we can get to. Yeah. It's it's the false bravado that we we construct often that keeps us in a stage of being disconnected with our authentic emotional experience. Right. <clears throat> the phrase you use is the tyranny of positivity, which I love and I think it's so accurate. And what's amazing about that story is is like the power of somebody giving you permission to feel in a, in, a, in a climate of denial, it's, saying it's okay. And in fact, this is where you need to go. And I support you and I have your back. Yeah. And it's, it's life-changing. I would write in this journal and, you know, poetry and thoughts, and I would hand it in every day. And this was the secret silent correspondence with this mm, teacher. It's beautiful. And she would write back to me and you know, this went on for for many months. And you still keep it up now. I still keep it you up, do. not in the same journal. Yeah. I've got the same, but, but yeah. I you still, still have the original still journals? Keep it up. And what was fascinating is that experience then became the catalyst of my life's work. Mm-hmm. This idea of trying to understand what it is that we often experience in society, because it is often a tyranny. There's There's this idea that, you know, boys don't cry. Mm. 
that girls should smile, mm. that women and people who discriminated against should not be angry. And so what this does is it is it these these are what we call in psychology display rules, the, this kind of implicit shaping of what it's okay or not okay to feel. You know, the flip side of that or the the really dark side of that is it leads people into situations where we know that social policies, for instance, can and do affect people's well-being. And so when we start having a narrative in society that says, oh, it's all about the fact that you aren't thinking positive enough, what it starts to do is it starts to abrogate our societal responsibility in recognizing that our choices can and do impact on people's well-being. Yeah, I think that was one of the biggest epiphanies that I took from your book uh, that I hadn't really thought about in any kind of meaningful way before, which is how these things act on the micro and on the macro yeah. and what and how the macro is impacted by you know these these denial patterns or these so, sort of so, unhealthy social mores that we adopt as a yeah. culture and how they play out um, not just in your in your family or with yourself but in your community and the planet at large and when you really track that and look at that you realize how powerful all of this is. It's it's so it's so incredibly powerful. Internal pain comes out. Mm-hmm. And it it comes out in a lack of compassion for the world. It comes out in a lack of compassion for life. It also comes out in, for instance, in our parenting and being very solution focused with great, wonderful, beautiful intentions mm-hmm. with our children but in ways that don't necessarily help to develop their own emotional skills. I feel like that's changing though. I mean, we all kind of intellectually know if you're going through something difficult, like seek out help, like ask for help, go to therapy, confront these emotions. But I don't know how widely adopted it is or how the extent to which it's practiced with you know the less sort of um, cataclysmic events that we experience throughout our lives. Yeah, yes, that's and 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 I, I think that's right. I think it's it's you know one of the things that I explore in the book very much is I try to take the book both in the very practical everyday, you know, mm-hmm. here are strategies into the wider context of when when we in grief, you know, what does that look like? And in many ways it's these everydays of being able to shape our intentions in our relationships and in our in our um health and in our well-being, that often those kind of ideas don't get explored because there's there's still this idea that there's, again, good and bad emotions or we should just think positive. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem. A problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you 
to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life and recovery is wonderful. And recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Let's fast forward a little bit to like the hooked section in the book, which is really about these stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. Because I think, you know, as, as we kind of discussed earlier, you know, we all do this on some level, whether it's feelings of, of unworthiness or undeservedness or, you know, our inability to find the right partner for ourselves, how we kind of view the world, the lens through which we perceive everything is by definition, this prism that distorts reality. Yeah. Right. Yes. So how do we, get, like, how does this happen? <laughs> and then how do we develop the capacity to see it objectively so that we can yes. begin to unpack it and move beyond it? So, yeah. So the, by, by def, definitionally what I mean by hooked in and being emotionally inagile is when your thoughts, your emotions, and your stories are driving your actions rather than your values and your mm -hmm. true intentions. So examples might be, um, a thought might be something like, I'm not good enough, uh, I want to apply for the job, I know I've got the skills, but I'm not going to get it, so mm -hmm. I don't apply. Or um, I, you know, would love to go to the party, but I'm anxious of being rejected, so I'm going to stay home. Or my husband's starting in on the finances and I don't mm -hmm. like it. So, so when we hooked, what's happening is, you know, there's this beautiful, beautiful idea that I talk about in the book, which many of your listeners will have heard, which is 
This Viktor Frankl, Viktor Frankl, who survives the Nazi death camps, speaks to this idea that between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose. And it's in that choice that comes our growth and freedom. When we hooked, when our thoughts, our emotions, and our stories drive us, there's no space between stimulus and response. So we have a thought, we have an emotion, or we have a story about whether we good enough, valuable enough. Some of these stories were written on our mental chalkboards in grade three, and they've mm-hmm. become a prison around ourselves. Um, and so what starts to happen is uh, there's no space between stimulus and response. We think, we are, we feel, and we just act. So core aspects of becoming unhooked and the core um, underpinnings of emotional agility, I talk about it in four very practical ways in the book. And that's not to imply that like it's step one, step two, step three, step four. Mm -hmm. But really I talk about these four movements, if you like. The first is about being able to show up to ourselves in ways that are um, curious and compassionate and not in struggle with ourselves. So where we actually able to extend compassion to the fact that you might have a story about your value in life, or you might have a story about what relationship you deserve. And that story's probably come from somewhere. You know, right. You, there's something that happens. Yes. But what's interesting kind of psychologically and neurologically about that is there's always going to be some inciting event. There's some there's some hook to which you're hanging, you know, your evidence for why you tell this story. Something happened, you got fired or you got rejected or something like that. Um, but what makes, you know, it's like that becomes the, the, the sort of locus of your attention, even if it's rebutted or refuted by a hundred other examples of things that occurred in your life yes. that, that, yes. That, yes. that contradict that. <laughs> but for some reason we make these decisions like, no, that's, that's the way it is. And yeah. we hold on to that, yeah. right? So human beings are story-making machines. And, and actually we, we as human beings, one of the things that sets us apart is this making of stories and the idea that creating stories helps to keep a coherent narrative mm-hmm. in our lives. That you Makes know, sense of our it, it helps us to say, well, you know, the noise that I'm hearing is the whirring from the washing machine. You know, we we can't. We would be on cognitive overload if we were assessing every single stimulus in our lives anew every single day. So human beings are story making machines. We have 16,000 spoken thoughts every single day and many millions more course through our minds. Um, so what starts to happen is we, we, we have all of these thoughts, emotions, and we've got a particular area of our brains called the angular gyrus. And the angular gyrus is the crossroad of our memory, uh, taste, visual sensation. And so what starts to happen is we don't just have a thought like, Dr. Spock, you know, I'm having a thought that mm-hmm. I'm being attacked or I am, you know, I'm having this emotion. Our thoughts are experienced in technicolor. We have memories the last time this person spoke to me, how this felt when I was a child. And so as human beings, we are wired to have these visually um, real experiences that are these stories woven in these particular ways. And this is actually a key aspect of our survival as human beings. Mm -hmm. It enables us to say, this person who is about to attack me is not smiling. They're about to attack me because I've got a memory of what happened previously. 
So stories are normal. And I think one of the things that I really stress in this book is that it's not that the having stories is bad. In fact, sometimes the stories that we've had in our childhood in our childhoods have helped us to survive those childhoods, have been functional and helpful for us. But what starts to happen is when you bring an old story into a new situation in ways that don't serve you. So for instance, if you have a story that I don't deserve to be loved, and you then find someone who loves you, and we're then acting in ways to push that person away, mm-hmm. you've got a story yeah, that's not serving you. Right, right, right. And so in the book, I talk about these ideas of, you know, being able to be open to what that story taught you, how it might have actually helped you in the past, and then ways to start getting some perspective around that story and noticing the story for what it is, a story, one of many mm-hmm. stories, but that doesn't need to own you. Yeah, I think that that the process of becoming open to a more objective perspective on your stories would begin with understanding something that that we're not really taught, which is that you can become an observer of your thinking mind yes. and you can call it your higher consciousness, the terminology, yes. you know, is up to you, but but we do have the ability to bifurcate and understand that the looping of the thinking mind is something outside of who you are as an individual and that you have a choice to whether you you want to engage with that or yes. disengage and yes. become a dispassionate observer of that. Yeah. And I think for me, and I mean, I, my kind of perspective, you know, just for a little background on me is I come from, I'm longtime sober, uh, and and have learned through the process of recovery in that community, yeah. you know, a lot of tools for managing this. Yeah. But I remember it being a revelation, like, wait a minute, like, I don't have to self-identify with this. Like, yes. I can actually, like, I even, just the idea that I have a choice or that I have agency over that was like, oh my God. C- completely right? mind-boggling. And, yeah. and, and in the book, I talk about this, this first movement, which is showing up, but the second movement is exactly this, this idea of stepping out being able to notice your story and be compassionate towards your story, but not be your story. To be neutral, to be, to be the neutral to be able observer. To, and so, it. so you know, just really some, some kind of fascinating uh, strategies around this. And we've all experienced this even in, you know, subtle ways. We've experienced that, that, that thing when you are outraged with some customer service agent down the telephone and you want to kind of vent at the person and you you on fire. And then that little voice goes off inside your mind that says, Susan, if you rant at this person, they will conveniently lose your file mm. and not solve mm-hmm. your problem. And so we've all had that experience of being upset or angry with someone and then had what is, you know, a meta thought or metacognition, an, a thought about our thought that helps to create that sense of separation between right, stimulus right, and right, response. Right. And so, you know, simple strategies that help us to do this are, for instance, we often will say things like, I am sad, I am angry. And what that does is it makes you, all of you, 100% of you sad, whereas you are more than sad. You, right. you, you've got other feelings, you've got other thoughts, you've got other stories, you've got other values. And so simply just noticing the thought for what it is, which is what you describe, I'm noticing that I'm feeling. Mm -hmm. I'm noticing that I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. I'm noticing that this is my victim story. What that does is it starts to create separation. 
Um, another way that we can do this is to start labeling our emotions accurately. When you say something like, I am stressed, again, it's all of you, and it's this very diffuse, difficult right. to what describe mean, emotion. Actually? What does that mean? There's a world of difference between I'm stressed because I was let down by my team versus I'm in the wrong career versus actually I'm kind of grieving for lost time mm -hmm. in you know mm -hmm. so we know there's this there's this fascinating research in um, emotions called emotion granularity which is this idea that if you say to yourself you know what are two other emotion words to describe my stress I'm disappointed or I'm angry what this does is it starts to activate um, our understanding of the causes of those emotions and also starts to activate what's called the readiness potential in our brains where we are start we're starting to be able to set goals towards what do I need mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. do about the situation. Mm -hmm. So there are many different strategies of perspective taking and being able to move into that observer space, but it's incredibly powerful. Yeah. Oh, so much so. I mean in 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 recovery it's sort of they they call it the inventory, like which is sort of journaling, right? Like yeah. which helps you gain a little bit of clarity over these emotional states the more you kind of flush them out on paper. But I would also imagine that um, the journey towards the process of trying to expand that space that Viktor Frankl was talking yeah. about can be significantly enhanced through meditation and mindfulness practices because it really helps you become that dispassionate observer. Yeah, yeah. So people will dis you know people will disagree with me on this. I'm I, what I talk about in this book is I think that you know mindfulness is very, very powerful. I don't think you necessarily have to be mindful when you take out the trash and, you know, mindful every second of the day. But this creation of space, especially with emotions that that trigger you or thoughts that trigger you in particular ways, mindfulness is just so powerful because what you're doing is you are noticing mm -hmm. the thought for what it is, mm -hmm. a thought, noticing the emotion. These are data not directives. Mm -hmm. There's valuable information contained in them, but they're not directives. And it's that mindfulness is incredibly powerful. Yeah, the data directives thing is huge. And I, I think you also say, uh, you know, who's in control here? Is it the is it the thought or, or the, the thinker? thinker yeah, right? who's in charge? The and and the I think thought. most people are living reactively. Like they, nobody's been sort of indoctrinated into these ideas to understand, like you don't have to be reactive or responsive to these stories in that kind of impulsive, compulsive way that most of us just sort of live. Yeah, and it's so it's such a powerful thing. I see this um, in so many different spheres, but but you know, as an example in children, when we when we are experiencing a child who is in pain, for instance, a child who says something like, you know, mommy, um, I didn't get invited to the birthday party. And I'm mm. so upset and everyone else got invited. So what we can start seeing is that there's no space between stimulus and response when that child says, Jack didn't invite me, now I'm not going to invite him. And one of the most powerful questions that we can start asking our children that helps to develop their character and their compass is, who do you want to be in this situation? You know, what does being a good friend look like to you? What that starts to do is it starts to help the child to understand that they, you seeing them, firstly, you helping them to label their emotions, but you're also helping them to 
empower themselves to make a choice about the situation. Mm -hmm. That's not necessarily their first impulse. Right. And that's so powerful. What about the person who is a professional victim? It's everybody's fault. You know, nothing ever works out for me. Uh, you know, just doom and gloom with the, you know, the it's raining on them wherever they go, no matter what. And my experience with this kind of personality type is you can provide them with some, you could say, here, read this book, or why don't you try this, or why don't you try that? And that person is generally disinterested in that and more interested in searching for evidence that reaffirms the victim narrative. Does yeah, that yeah, no, it come up against this? Well, well, it's, it was, it's fascinating. One of the most remarkable studies that I came across when I was researching this book is, and it just sounds completely, you know, at odds with what you would expect, but it, it was research showing that when people who've got a story that is very much about a victim and, and you know, low self-esteem and the world is against me and and this, so self-identified. And, and, and very, very identified yeah. in this way. So imagine you've got someone who's experiencing that story and that person is in a job and that person gets promoted. Okay, so now what they're getting is they're getting disconfirming evidence. Like they're mm -hmm. getting evidence saying, actually, you, you know, you are of value, you are worth something. So what is absolutely stunning is that those people are more likely to then leave the job. Uh -huh. Because it feels because it so, the it feels so discordant, yeah. and so you know, one of the things that I think is just so powerful is that I think that these stories have functions, and sometimes the function is an excuse, and sometimes the function is self protection. Because mm -hmm. if if I'm a victim, then I don't need to take responsibility, and sometimes the function is um you know that that this allows me to self sabotage and i think what's really important here is to distinguish that kind of thing versus someone who you know is truly experiencing depression right. and you know so so because i think that's a really really important distinction but i think what starts to happen is is um when you start to explore what you often start to realize is and what the person will start to realize is that it may be a story and it may have a function of protection, but that it's not serving right. them. And so instead of becoming kind of judgy about the story, if we can help them to identify what are values that that story is taking them away from mm -hmm. or, or what are relationships or, or you know, what are, what are other parts of them that are not being enabled. Right, right, right. Yeah, I would I could see that. You know, I'm I'm just as you're describing that I'm thinking, you know, if somebody's walking around their whole life with a certain story, like the idea that you're going to then say, "Well, do this and then suddenly the story no longer applies." Like it's complicated, right? This is a this is a very difficult thing. It's, it is and and I think this is where, you know, this is where um being able to be more attuned and nuanced to the, for the person of the emotion that they're experiencing, mm -hmm. this is where, you know, writing is incredibly helpful because it starts to gain insight. This is where exploring, um, you know, what are what are things that you're wanting to move in the direction of that you're not, you know, this is not a one conversation thing, but, mm -hmm. but I think that these, the, the, what are ways that you can start experimenting 
with different ways of being that are more right. connected and that take you to discomfort more is just very powerful. Let's go back to this conversation about um, the good and the bad emotions and yes. our sort of inability <laughs> to just embrace that the human condition is it requires all of it. You have this beautiful phrase in your TED talk, something about how um, you know the beauty and the fragility of life go hand in hand. I can't yeah. butchering it, I'm sure, yes. but this idea that we need to embrace all of ourselves and that the path towards healing and wholeness and self-actualization requires us to, you know, have have a meaningful embrace of whatever life throws in our path. Yeah, yes, it's 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 this idea that life's fragility, life's beauty is inseparable from its fragility and you know, I explore in the book this idea, you know, I think we've all had this. It's like you you walk around and you're young and then one day you realize that you're not young, you you sexy and then you realize actually no one's even looking at you anymore. <laughs> yeah. You you um nag your children to clean their room and one day there's silence where that child once was. You healthy until you get a diagnosis that brings you to your knees. And really the reality of life is that tough emotions are part of our contract with life. Like we we don't get to have a meaningful career or raise a family or leave the world a better place without stress and discomfort. And yet we live in a culture that pays lip service to like going towards your, you know, going out of your comfort mm -hmm. zone. But that at its core really has this idea that there's good and bad emotions. And so you start looking at the just frightening, you know, public health crisis, which is that depression is now the leading cause of disability globally. Right. It's crazy. Outstripping That's, cancer. It's insane. Outstripping yeah, heart, heart disease. disease. And so I think that what starts to happen is we start um, almost creating a situation where we aren't able to process difficult emotions when we're in a society that tells us positive thinking is all that matters or positive emotions are all that matter. And so we we actually don't we don't develop skill sets around this. And so I, you know, if the core ideas behind emotional agility is this idea that in order to navigate the world as it is, not as we wish it to be, mm -hmm. we need to be able to strengthen our capability with the full range of this beautiful, messy, <laughs> difficult human experience. Right, right, right. right. In, a, in a culture in which we're actively encouraged to go out of you know go out of our way to avoid all of these unpleasant emotions and if you should find yourself in the grips of them you should be ashamed of yourself you know, yeah, you know and it's, whether it's, it's as simple as security and safety yeah, and, and yeah. luxury and comfort and all yeah. of that and and being you know squarely within your comfort zone or just you know the 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 sort of daily emotions that we all experience on some level along the spectrum of guilt shame fear you know, yes, abandonment, yes. whatever so, it is. So, well, and, 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 and even just our language, which we often, again, it's with, with good intentions. A friend of mine recently died of um, breast cancer and she said to me, you know, we were talking about this tyranny of positivity and she said to me, it's so difficult because when you, when you have cancer and when that cancer is terminal, every person you come into contact with tells you to, just stay positive, mm. just stay positive. And what she described is that it took her away from actually being able to have 
authentic, meaningful, end-of-life conversations that she needed to have, that even in her dying, she was living and she was able to and wanted to be able to be able to have real conversations with people that she right. loved. But it becomes very difficult when you try to have those conversations and people are like, oh, you're being negative or, you, right. or, or you know, you're not going to beat this cancer. <laughs> It says more about the discomfort of the person delivering that because it is so uncomfortable for most people to talk about death and these things are scary. So when they, they may be well-intentioned saying stay positive, but most likely they're uncomfortable with anything other than that, right? So so it's their way of like, well, I have to say something. Yeah, well, it's a Band-Aid <laughs> you know? for the end of it. You know, and again, yeah. it's done with great, it's done, you know, I'm not yeah, trying yeah, to, yeah. you know, but it's, it's a Band-Aid for the person who's delivering that rather than actually being fundamentally mm-hmm. helpful so often. I'm not saying, you know, there might be many people in the world who experiencing illness where someone saying stay positive is helpful. Mm-hmm. But I know that there, there are many people that I've spoken to who find that it feels like, okay, now not only do I need to beat my cancer, but I've now got to deal with these somehow bad thoughts that I'm not allowed to be having. Right, and and hold up this face of yeah. strength when yeah. you don't feel like it and, and feel badly if you yeah. can't live up to that. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation, a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most, mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. You know, kind of inside of that also is this idea that you explore, which is that the more we do actively deny these emotional states, the more we empower them. Like below the surface, the more yes. we try to you know, pretend yes. they're not there, yes. 
the stronger they become. They're doing push-ups in the dark. Well, it's so fascinating. So again, I just want to stress that I'm not anti-happiness or like anti-being positive. What I'm anti is what I'm anti is a narrative that constructs good and bad around these things and then leads us into stages of expectation that I should be happy or that Mm -hmm. I can't be unhappy. And yeah, it's fascinating when you look at, when you look for instance at people who have a very strong expectation that they need to be happy and you track those people over time, those people become less happy. That there's this, when you, when you hold this idea that happiness is more important than meaning is more important than purpose is mm-hmm. more then what it is is it sets up some kind of um goal that is fundamentally unattainable and so people who actively strive to be happy become less happy over time what it also does is it leads to um greater levels of um in the book I talk about different ways of dealing with emotion that are difficult and one way is um bottling our emotions where we push aside difficult emotions the other is brooding where we dwell on and what's fascinating is when you bottle emotions, when you push aside difficult emotions, there's this uh, there's this mm-hmm. effect that's that's an amplification or a rebound effect, that these emotions actually come back stronger and more. And people have experienced this. If you you know again are on a diet and you're trying not to think of chocolate cake, we know that you start dreaming of chocolate cake when you ask people to not think a particular thought, and you time them for a minute most people will have that thought mm-hmm. that's been banned mm-hmm. 40 times within that minute. Mm-hmm. So this idea of trying to push aside, suppress, move away from these difficult thoughts and feelings, it just doesn't work. Right. Allow yourself to feel them as part and parcel of being human, but also understand that thoughts are just things and emotions are just things. And you know, one of the kind of tools or lessons that I've learned in sobriety is, you know, Addicts and alcoholics drink because they don't want to feel, they want to change their emotional state. They don't yeah. want to feel however, however unconscious that decision is, it's a decision to try to not feel however they feel, yeah. right? And and sobriety is about understanding and learning and embracing the fact that these emotions, although they may feel like they're going to kill you, they're just emotions. Yes. They have the power that we attach to them. Yeah. And if we can allow ourselves to just be okay feeling them. There is one thing that is certain and that ultimately they will shift and pass. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. The radical acceptance of our emotions, mm-hmm. even the difficult ones, is the cornerstone. But it's so scary. It's scary. It's scary. And and this is, again, when you parenting, where helping your children very young to start mm-hmm. labeling their emotions, not trying to rush in and save your children from difficult emotions, because when you save them from difficult emotions, they don't learn, right. oh, I was feeling sad 15 minutes ago and that emotion has now passed. Mm-hmm. So how do we step out? We talk a little bit more. I mean, we talked about it a little bit. Yeah, yes. So there there are a number of things that are, so um, really this idea of stepping out is about creating the space. So there's firstly, and I explore many different strategies in the book, but the first one is this instead of I am feel, you know, mm-hmm. I am sad, I'm noticing that I'm sad. Um, being labeling your emotions. What what are what are two other emotions that I might be feeling? Um, writing, very, very powerful. There's incredibly valuable research showing that through writing, through putting things into language, you start generating greater levels of insight. Mm-hmm. And this writing is not about ruminating or dwelling. It's about 
trying to understand. Um, perspective taking, fascinating when you're working with people and and I don't work clinically anymore. I work often with individuals who are running companies and, you know, it's it's fascinating when someone is stuck and they say to themselves something like, you know, there's no ways I'll be able to shift my career or there's no ways we're going to have success on this project or there's, so we're stuck in a story. Mm-hmm. And I used to experience this when I was working clinically, as you would say to someone, you know, what do we need to do about the situation? And the person would say, I've got no idea. There's nothing I can do. There's no hope. And then you might ask them a, a very like simple question, like you would say something like, if the wisest person in the world was advising you what to do, what would they say? And suddenly this person who's now starting to physically, mentally look at things from a different perspective, now the wise person says, oh, well, they would tell me that I should do this and this and this and this and this uh-huh. and this and this. <laughs> so they so already know the answer. It's it's it's, fas- it's mm-hmm. fascinating, but, but often when we are stuck, we're stuck in our first-person perspective. And so when we start using um, this perspective-taking capacity, what would the person who loves you most in the world be advising? Mm-hmm. We start being able to shift this. In in therapy, when I was working as a therapist, we'd we'd often do this physically, which which sounds kind of bizarre, but it's it's very helpful. Is we would actually sit two chairs next to each other, and we would ask the person to move physically from one chair to the next, having a conversation with themselves. So the person who's stuck and the wise person, and it sounds, you know, but but. What's just incredible is it starts to create a palpable shift. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that I would say is, you know, often when we when we stuck, we talk to ourselves in the first person. So we'll say something like, "I'm stuck. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do." Try shifting where you say, "So, Susie, what do you think you should do right now about the situation?" Again, it sounds mm-hmm. kind of crazy, but it works. It works. We're starting to create space. Mm-hmm. And in that space is something incredibly powerful, which is empowerment and ownership of choice. Within that, there is the development of an intellectual understanding, a more objective understanding of what the problem is and, and what the way forward looks like. But I feel like all too often, there's this massive gap in between the intellectual understanding and the tangible or sustainable behavioral change, Yes. right? It's sort of like, I know I need to do that, and yet it still doesn't happen, or there's something hamstringing that person that prevents them from taking the action. They have enough awareness to know yeah. is what they were, they're supposed to be doing, and yet they just can't muster the, the, the will or, or whatever you would deem it to get it done. Yes, yes. So what's going on and, there? And so often what's going on there is is um, people, people even though they've got the intellectual expertise around it, are still actually kind of in the contemplation mm. stage. And it's, it's, it's really, you know, th- this is almost like when you in a job in with your KPIs and your boss says, you've got to do these 10 things today, otherwise you're not going to get a promotion. Or, you know, it it feels abstract and it feels like this is a list of stuff that I've got to do, but I don't have any intrinsic investment in it. Mm-hmm. And so what is absolutely just critical to on-the-ground behavior change is moving from 
this intellect into this is where these values come in. Right. This is where these values come in. Like, what is what is the value to me? Not okay. I've got to lose weight in an intellectual sense, but what is this being healthy mean to me in being able to watch my children grow up? Mm-hmm. And I can give you, you know, I'll give you an example of this. As many years ago, I was working with a, a client who's now a very good friend, and he had adopted a child from Nicaragua, and so this this friend of mine had gone married very late. He hadn't been able to have children and he adopted this kid and this child had lived in the most heartbreaking conditions in an orphanage where for three years the child had been fed through bars of a crib and untouched and unheld. Mm -hmm. And my client for many, many, many years had been trying to make health changes. He had gone to doctors. His wife was at him. He had, you know, he had, he had done it all and he hadn't been able to shift. And he very much had the story of he traveled a lot. I'm a consultant. I can't get into a routine. I, I just can't do it. And his child, as the child grew up, had profound learning difficulties that had likely been precipitated by this experience in this orphanage. But the child turned out to be a remarkable artist. Mm. And one day, this little boy draws a picture, and the picture is of this individual in pain, like excruciating emotional pain. And the little boy, now at the age of 16, titles the picture The Orphan. And my client says to the little boy, or now to the adolescent, you know, I understand that you often draw experiences that you had when you were in the orphanage. But why is it that you're drawing a kind of 16-year-old version of you but calling it the orphan? And this little boy just started sobbing and he said to his dad, because I know I will be orphaned again. You know, I know that I will be orphaned again. Mm-hmm. And my client describes how, and I explore this in the book, is his goal that was a have to goal, I have to lose weight, which is this prison that he had somehow wrapped himself around, shifted into a want to goal. The want to goal is the goal that's intrinsically felt and values aligned. And he was able to, and now longstandingly has made successful changes to his health and well-being. So I think what so often happens is we think that we can make changes by exerting brute force against ourselves. You know, we know we need need to do it intellectually, Mm -hmm. but we exert brute force. But sustainable change actually doesn't happen in that way. Sustainable change happens when there's an intrinsically felt motivation that is not a have to, but a a want to, a value that is important to us. It's a beautiful story. It's heartbreaking, but has a nice ending to it. it's powerful, and I think you're. I think that's absolutely correct. I think that, you know, if somebody has a huge capacity for self-will and dedication and devotion, they could white knuckle themselves through the achievement yes. of some goal. But ultimately, it's not a sustainable situation yeah. unless its value yeah. values aligned. And and you know that's why I, I always kind of talk about willingness and what a gift it is because it's something you cannot you can't give to somebody. Like if some somebody's willing or they're not, yes. like, like somebody is willing to do whatever it takes to get sober or they're not, right? 
And how do you ignite that in another yeah. individual? And yeah. from what I'm gathering from what you're saying, like I've always thought, well, that's just, there's, I'm, a, I'm powerless when it comes to that, if I'm trying to help another human being. But what you're saying, which is very interesting, and I haven't really, I'm just thinking out loud, but if you can get them to direct their attention towards their values and then link up whatever that goal is or that aspiration is in a way that aligns with that values, that's a starting point to try to get them to a place where perhaps some some willingness can begin to flourish. Yes, and and then there's the habit, you know, then there's the cues mm-hmm. in the environment and the habit change. But I'll, I'll give you a, just a practical research-based example of this. Imagine you are, you know, I keep going back to chocolate cake because I'm obviously yeah. obsessed with chocolate cake today. <laughs> but so, okay, so imagine you've got a goal that you're trying to lose weight. I have to lose weight, okay? And there's a piece of chocolate cake in the refrigerator. What we know is that when you've got a have-to goal, so it's not out of a sense of values, but more shame and obligation very often. That piece of chocolate cake, we know in research studies that what it does is it actually ramps up temptation. So have two goals actually ramp up temptation. Mm-hmm. They make us want the thing that we can't have and we focus and focus and right, focus that, on it. There's resistance. There's resistance. Mm-hmm. So now you take that. And so you might say, well, what about willpower? You know, what about this, what you were talking about, this mm-hmm. white-knuckled willpower? What about willpower, just brute force against it? But what's fascinating is your brain processes taste sensation 195 milliseconds before you even know you are making a choice. Mm. So what that means is- We have you, no self-will. <laughs> you, you, willpower is this <laughs> In completely a Sam Harris kind of way. overrated yeah. idea. Your brain knows whether you are going to eat the chocolate cake before you even know that right. you are making a, a, a choice here that involves willpower. So your brain's already decided you're eating the chocolate cake. Now you take that same goal and you derive a sense of want to motivation. So intrinsically values aligned, this is this is why I don't want to eat the piece of chocolate cake. Right. When you go to that refrigerator, instead of only seeing the chocolate cake, you see everything else, it ramps down temptation and it actually helps you to create sustainable behavior change. So this is critical. And I think so much of the so much of the conversation about how do we change habits is, is superficial because what it does is it's very much just about how do you change your environment? How do you cue your environment? All that stuff is really helpful. But it is the intrinsic stuff that allows it to be sustainable right. in a real way. Right, right, right. Yeah, I have my own experience with this. Um, 11 years, uh, 11 years ago, I was like 50 pounds overweight and just junk food addict, couch potato type person. And my wife, of course, you know, was like, why don't you try this? Why don't yeah. you do this? Here's a, she's like a spiritual seeker, you know, her, the, by her bedstand are all these amazing yeah, books yeah. about expanding your, you know, consciousness and, and you're stuff. you're like, I'm expanding my you know, girth. Like, yeah, what do she's you mean, always expand like, my consciousness? <laughs> like it's her second nature to be in this, this sort of yeah. like self-improvement gestalt at yeah, all times. Yeah. And I'm just like, I'm more like, I was, practicing lawyer at the time. And I was like, that's cool for her. Like that's, let me do my thing, yeah. you know? And she was never vibing me or anything like yes. that. She could yes. just see like a better version of me beyond, that you know. That you aren't honoring been. yourself. Yeah, it's like, she. she's like, you're better. Like you, yeah. you can be, like, I see you, you know, yeah. you can't see yourself. I see you, let me help you. But yeah. the more she extended her hand to help me, yeah. 
the more I recoiled. Yes. Even when it was completely loving and not yes. vibing or anything like that, until she got to a place where she's like, she really had to like decide like, if this guy never changes, do I still want to be with him? Yeah. And she decided that she did. And she really, not in a perfunctory lip service way, like she let it go. Like she just totally yeah. let it go. Yeah. And she actually apologized to me and said, I'm sorry, like it's your life and I love you and I'm, I love being married to you. And like, yeah. I release you to your experience. Yes. And there was something that I was not conscious of at the time that was very powerful because what it did was it shifted my awareness from, to use your vernacular, from a should to a want. Yeah. Because suddenly, I didn't have to do anything for her, yeah. but it made the mirror suddenly present itself in front of me and led me to question, what do I want for myself? Which is a yes. question I hadn't asked yet because I was so focused on, on you know, like what other people were expecting me to yes. do. Yes, and the resistance to right. that. And, and, and nothing was changing, yeah. right? And so when I finally did ask that question, I was able to, I, I was, this was all just in a very muddled, intuitive way. Yeah. I wish I had had this book. Led me <laughs> this is a book that Julie would have given it. She would have said, you should have No, I know. Yes. Um, but that did really kind of uh, lead me into trying to better define what my values were and what I aspired for myself. And that was a, a huge, tremendous shift that completely changed my life, yeah. complete. I mean, I wouldn't like be sitting no here talking to you. Yeah, like would not be, we would not be having this conversation. Yeah. So yeah. in the moment, I guess what I'm getting at is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm validating everything that you're saying, but also wanting to make the point that sometimes it's these tiny little subtle things that can have yes. massive impact yes. that we shouldn't just give short shrift or skip over. Like it can be those tiny gestures that in the moment we may not feel are significant and yet have profound implications. They are, they are I think one of the biggest misappreciations, if there's such a word, mm. is this idea that in order to make change in our lives, that it needs to be, you know, let's sell up and go live on a farm in Greece or let's, and actually there's just huge power in tiny tweaks, mm -hmm. in small shifts and there might be shifts in the other, shifts in someone seeing you, you know, this beautiful soul born, I, I see you and I still love you. Mm -hmm. And that being able to be experienced as someone who's having the love regardless can free you mm -hmm. and being able to make sh tiny shifts in our own lives can make a huge difference. Yeah, I love that phrase. So how do you say it again? Suborn. So it's this beautiful, yeah. It's a, I, I talk about it in my TED, which is this, in South Africa, there's this absolutely profoundly beautiful phrase, which is Saubobona. And anyone who's gone to South Africa, you hear it a hundred times on, mm. the, on the streets. Saubobona literally translated means, it's a greeting, it's hello, but literally translated means, I see you and by seeing you, I bring you into being. Mm. It's just yeah, it's, so it's beautiful. Yeah, it's so, so beautiful. Um, how does this? Well, let's talk about the the these little these little steps, the the tiny tweaks, because this is also like right in the sweet spot of the things that I like to yeah. to talk about and I talk about often. You know, we're in this culture of life hacks and shortcuts and like yeah. what's the least amount of effort that I need to expend in order to get this result that I want, and we kind of celebrate these people that do 
extraordinary things and we project onto them that this happened in a condensed period of time or was without failure and yeah. all of these things. And I think what gets lost in the discussion around people that do extraordinary things is that the path towards that is contained fully and completely in the tiny little things that we do every single day anonymously yeah. that in and of themselves seem yeah. in, in, insignificant, but which ultimately over time move mountains. Yeah, so. And no one likes to talk, like just change that one little thing. Yeah. And it's, it's so it's, doable. I mean, not not to, you know, I'm, I'm by no means an Elon Musk, but but, you know, when I think back to my own career, you know, the, the failings, I mean, I'd dropped out of university and um, went backpacking around the world for two years because I didn't know what I wanted to do and then came back and, you know, did my PhD and did my postdoc. But it was this idea of being able to start shifting my understanding of myself mm -hmm. in terms of what I wanted. But even in my own, you know, day-to-day -day life, there are ways that I manage my time that are tiny tweaks, like one of the most important things that I did even in trying to write this book is I think there's this idea often that like, you know, you, 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 I don't know how you write, but for me, I certainly, you know, get zero inspiration when I'm on an airplane and jet lagged. Mm -hmm. And so I realized that for me, um, focus was just incredibly important. And so a tiny tweak that I made just even in terms of my own productivity was having one day a week, which is my appointment frictional day where I do, you know, all of the other stuff. And then I've got deep work. Now, that's such a small shift that I made, which is literally just a shift to my calendar. Mm -hmm. But it was completely, completely changing in terms of my productivity. Right. And it's there's nothing sexy about that. There's nothing sexy about <laughs> yeah, it. You know? You know, there's nothing sexy uh -huh. about it, but it's but it, uh, it's one of the most powerful changes that I've made. Right. Um, like what are the tiny little things that you can do that are small shifts that you can then master and then move on to the next thing. Yes. Right. Yes. The same, the same. And I talk about this in emotional agility that, you know, if you're in the wrong career or if you, the idea that you've got to give up your job and completely change your life, whereas if we start engaging with something that, that we call job crafting, this idea that you might feel stuck in your job and yes, you may just give up your job and move move on to something else. Mm -hmm. But actually, what we can start doing is we can say, you know, what is what is this again? What is this emotion? This feeling of disengagement? What value is it pointing to that's important for me? It might be about growth, or it might be about creativity that's missing. And then we can start saying, well, where can I start um, finding more growth? Where can I start finding more creativity? Where can I start finding more collaboration? And so, you know, we can put our hands up for different projects. We can engage in going to some meetings that we might not have otherwise. We can start crafting things. We can we can start networking in different ways. So they're these small things that ultimately create mm -hmm. another ecosystem for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Everyone wants to think that it's just about up and quitting your job and now I'm going to be a stand-up comic or or whatever. But it begins with like, well, why don't you just write a joke? <laughs> you don't have to quit your job yet. Yeah. Maybe you shouldn't, you probably shouldn't, right? But how can you bring expression to that repressed um, thing that is yeah. that is calling to you in a way that doesn't need to disrupt your life, but ignites that spark that will then lead you to whatever comes next? Yes, yeah. yes, which is, which is just so powerful. And I think the other thing that it does is it builds on the idea, and I, I have a lot of people contact me saying, you know, I'm unhappy in my job. What should I do? You know, should I just give it up? 
something called you some, most of the mm-hmm. time, not all the time, but something might have called that person to that particular job and they might have developed particular expertise that is valuable and that becomes a stepping stone to their other right it might inform it might it might benefit them in the other thing but i think it goes back to emotional agility because let's say you're in your job and to use the example of the stand-up comic you're repressing that impulse because you have this story that that's not the purview of the responsible breadwinner, right? And so you're pushing it aside, you're exerting all this energy to deny it. You know it's there, but you're trying your best to not consciously engage it. Emotional agility would be, oh, that's kind of, that's that's tapping on me. Yeah, Yeah, let's like, maybe let's explore that. Like, okay, I'll write a joke, you know, let me, but I can do it in a way that's somewhat dispassionate and I I don't have to be, you get all crazy about it, but like, hmm. Okay. Yes. Notice. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's beautiful. And then on top of that, to kind of piggyback onto that, there's this idea uh, that you talk about, which is the teeter-tottering, right? Yes. You want to talk about that? Yeah, a bit? I do. Yeah, I, it's, I, it's, I, it's, yeah I love yeah. this too. And I have ideas about this, but explain what that means. So it's this idea. So, so you know, again, in the book, what I do is I talk about these four movements. I talk about showing up, which is noticing your thoughts and your emotions in compassionate ways, stepping out, which is creating the space, walking your why, which mm. is this, how do we make values aligned choices? And then moving on. The, this is this tiny tweaks as well as this teeter-totter principle. So um, the, the idea behind this is that Often when in life, whether it's in relationships or at work, we develop strong levels of overcompetence. So the idea here is that you can do your job with your eyes closed or you know what to expect. And this doesn't mean you aren't busy. You might be very busy doing something Mm -hmm. in a rote way. And when we overcompetent, it's a very strong risk factor for just feelings of disengagement and and ultimately a sense of disempowerment. So overcompetence is is very difficult for us. But by the same token, human beings like comfort and we really struggle with the Mm -hmm. opposite, which is over-challenge. Over-challenge in a job is where you keep feeling like you're being thrown in the deep end, you never know what's going on, the goals keep on changing. It's, again, a very strong risk factor for disengagement. And so the the sweet spot of growth in our lives is – um, where we neither overcompetent nor overchallenged. So what we're doing is we are working at the edge of our ability. So keeping on again, pushing the mm-hmm. boundary, not just for the sake of it, again, in a values-aligned way. You can take that same idea and you can apply it in relationships where you're in a relationship where you you know, go out with your spouse, you go to a movie, you know what the person's opinion is of the movie, you know what they're going to order at dinner, you know what you're going to talk about at dinner. You're overcompetent in that relationship and it's a risk factor for that relationship. You also don't want to be overchallenged where you're walking on eggshells. So what do we do when we are trying to work at the edge of our ability? Usually what we're trying to do is we're trying to either expand breadth or depth. Breadth might be we're trying new things, we're moving into environments that are maybe new, we may be, uh, instead of going out with the same group of friends with our spouse Mm. every week or the same movie, we're trying different things. So that's breadth. Depth is where you start going deeper, where you start developing greater levels of expertise or with your spouse, you start having conversations that you might not have had for the past 20 years 
you know, when you actually ask the person what their dreams were or what their fears were. or So depth and breadth are usually ways that we start expanding the mm-hmm. the edge and mm-hmm. moving at the edge of our ability. And it's in that zone that we have our greatest levels of growth and, yes, discomfort. But discomfort is, again, the price of admission to a meaningful life. Right. And, and I think in the in the book you use the example of the, the gymnast on the – walking on the beam, right? And and as that person loses their balance, it's their core strength, aka yeah. their emotional agility that yeah. allows them to then stabilize themselves yeah. once again. Yeah. yeah, and it's sort of like I had um, a couple of weeks ago, I had uh, the climber Alex Honnold yes. in here, you yes. know, who's just just brilliant what he does. And it, it's, it's so extraordinary um, what he's able to do. And I think it it really is a testament in many ways to this principle because he doesn't just up and climb El Cap without ropes, you know, yes. out of the blue. Yes. He's been doing this his whole life. Yeah. And, you know, it's just, okay, one wall a little bit more challenging than the last one. In the same way, you know, Laird Hamilton can surf this gigantic wave. It doesn't happen overnight. He doesn't go from a six-foot wave to a 20-foot wave. He goes from a six-foot wave to a six-and-a-half-foot yes. wave, right? Yes. Taking these incremental little yeah. steps to push that envelope of comfort or discomfort just the tiniest amount until there's an acclimation yeah. and then you're ready for the next challenge. Yeah. And it's it, it's a dishonor to our human imperfections to sell the narrative mm. that it's simply something that happens in one fell swoop that you know just happens that right. you know and that is the narrative gets, that's that what we read we read it and the, and we love that, that hero story and yeah. we believe that that's how it occurred yeah. but yeah. because we want to we want we want these people to be bigger than life yeah. but they're all human yeah. just like we are you know yeah it's hard though how does this work um do you have you had any experience working with people in the throes of some form of addiction, because that throws in an additional variable into this equation. Because if somebody is, if it's a substance addiction, then they're being compelled physiologically in a way that kind of makes it a little more tricky than the average person who's just stuck in a thought pattern. But I think looking at addiction from a broader perspective and as a spectrum, I think on some level, we're all addicts. We're, we all engage in compulsive behaviors yeah. to some form or another in ways that lead us astray. So is there, a, is there a tweak on this or do you have any sense of, I mean, would it be the same application if you were like treating somebody who's yeah. dealing with something so like this? So a lot this? of these ideas have been applied in, you know, across many clinical contexts, um, pain, addiction, depression, anxiety, and you know, they they are powerful. I mean, I think that the thing with addiction that you alluded to earlier is that addiction is very often a emotion regulation strategy. Mm. You know, what's happened, n- n- not in the addiction as it ultimately presents, but what's happened very early on is that it is a way of regulating our emotions. And right. so, you know, we start being able to pass out short-term strategies that are effective and ineffective and long-term strategies that are ineffective and ineffective. And short-term strategies that people use to regulate their emotions that are effective, of course, are things like Mm -hmm. exercise or um, going to the gym or getting enough sleep. And the ineffective ones are the overeating, drinking, Mm -hmm. it's all of those kind of things. The long-term effective um, is when we are starting to face into the situation 
in a way that is active, that's actually starting to move us into action, and that is direct, that's recognizing the situation for what it is. And so so these ideas are absolutely applicable across all contexts, but I think with the, you know, additional layer of recognition that addiction has often started early on mm-hmm. as a, a maybe not even thought out but but avoidance strategy of pain yeah of course you know of course yeah there's some discomfort um that you're i mean the the adage goes <clears throat> you know the the drugs and the alcohol that's not the addiction. That's the solution, yeah. right? The uh, the yeah. addiction is rooted in the emotional pain that yeah. is often can be traced back. You know, are you familiar with Gabor Mate and the work that he's done with yes. the early emotional yes. trauma? Yeah. yeah, and all of that. Yeah. Like so, that's that. And then and then once you get sober, the the delusion is that you've solved the problem, but actually you've just taken away your medication. The layers and you have of, to then yes. you know then you have to yeah. like treat the underlying condition, which is that sense of disease, that emotional, um, that emotional pain. And that involves confronting it in a way that I think, you know, these tools are highly applicable yeah, to yeah. in terms of- And the act of learning of yeah. new coping strategies, like new, d- different adaptive coping strategies. Right, 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 right. How do you see this playing out? Um, we talked about the micro and the, and the macro. Most of what we've been talking about is is the micro, but like, what's a good example of how Emotional rigidity is creating um, social societal uh, problems that we need to look at. Do you have an example for that? Well, well, it's it's. I mean, apartheid so, is obviously a yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think that there, I think that there are many examples. There are many examples where our difficulty in even seeing our own pain and being able to recognize our own sadness or anger um, cuts us off, cuts us off from being able to be empathetic and compassionate to the other. Right. And, 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 and intimate to the extent that you're, you're capable of with the people that you care about the most. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, so I think it plays out. I mean, I think it plays out into the way we treat the earth. I think it plays out into the dehumanizing of the other because when we when we cutting ourselves off from our own you know and I'm, we're talking at the extreme here but if we're cutting ourselves off from our own difficult emotion or even experiencing this narrative where we're saying things like well you know it's it's all just about being positive what that starts to imply is that people who are in pain people who are in poverty mm-hmm. people who are in discrimination um should you know just choose a better attitude, <laughs> basically. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's there's uh-huh. this very, very, you know, it is the abrogation of societal responsibility, responsibility because yeah. there's, there's, there's this idea that's baked into a narrative that's a narrative that says that only positive emotions are the ones that matter and that you should simply just choose your positive emotions mm-hmm. rather than be open and compassionate to the fragmented reality of human experience, mm-hmm. that the flip side of that is what it then starts to imply is that when people are in, and obviously, again, this is the extreme, that when people are in difficulty, it's because they've got a bad attitude because they right. haven't been able to move themselves into this 
positive space. Right. And the irony, of course, is that if you can embrace all of that emotional complexity, you could potentially get to a place where you have a positive attitude. Yes. <laughs> so know? back to my point, yeah. which is that I'm not <laughs> anti-happiness. I, I actually think that what I'm talking about is the pathway to authentic happiness. Mm -hmm. It's 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 an well. Happiness is a tricky word. Anyway. Correct. Yeah. You know yeah. Yeah. I mean? it's a, it's I, I don't absolutely. Even like it yeah. As yeah. A, as, you know, a life of purpose and fulfillment, a life of personal meaning to you. Yeah. But but even if we think about if we think about um, hate in a political spectrum, you know, there is there is this idea that there is the other that there's there's this good and this bad. There's the the right and the wrong. There's mm -hmm. and sometimes we just we. You know, if the gods of right came down and said to you, you know, you are right, that person is a complete idiot, you still get to choose how you want to engage with them. And unfortunately, I think what happens is in our being hooked and being emotionally rigid about being right, we've lost our ability to have the conversation that really matters. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think in that example that you just gave, you know, to let's say you somebody wronged you, and you have justifiable anger or you hold a resentment towards that person, ultimately you're the one who's suffering as a result of that, right? Yes. It's like a, it's, yes. It's not serving you yeah. in that way, no matter how correct that you are. I'm I'm often I'm often interviewed by Harvard Business Review, and you know, and people will often ask questions like what if my boss is a complete idiot? Like, what if my mm. boss really is a complete idiot? Or what if this organization has really done me wrong? Or what if my team member really is a slacker? And it just reaches the point, and, and with complete compassion, you can kind of understand that frustration. But if the gods of right came down and said, you are right, like, you are right, you are being mistreated, you are right. Where does that leave you? You know, where does that leave mm -hmm. you? You know, is your action workable or is it not workable? Is your action bringing you closer to being the person you want to be? You know, if you are feeling wronged by your coworker and so you disengaging, shutting down in your career, not contributing, how is that serving your career goals? You know, and it might be that, yes, this is a case where you want to make a shift, where you want to make a tweak. Mm -hmm. um, but, but I think, you know, one form of rigidity of emotional rigidity is being hooked on being right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a big one, I think, yeah. right? Rather than rather than asking the question of, is my reaction serving right. what I'm trying to right. be? In, in sobriety, they say, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so, yeah. And, and happy would be recontextualized so, yes. in your example yes. as, you know, do you want to, do you want to be right or do you want to live a life in accordance with your values? Correct. Right. Yeah. 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 All right, well, we gotta wrap this up here, but but let's just leave the listeners with um, you know, some sense of a first step. Perhaps somebody who's listening, the lights are going on for the first time and they're like, oh my God, I've been telling myself this or that. Like, <laughs> of course, you know, pick up the book Emotional Agility and this will see your see yourself through and and hopefully raise additional awareness around these things. But what is like a first step for somebody who's on the very first page of beginning this process of trying to better understand their motivations and what their values are. Absolutely. So just to some emotional agility is the ability to be with your thoughts, your emotions, your stories in ways that are compassionate, curious, and courageous, and to take actions that are concordant with your values. 
And so I think a first step is if you're someone who becomes judgy about whether you're right or wrong, whether you should or shouldn't have a story, one of the most critical aspects is ending the struggle by dropping the rope. Mm. And what I mean by that is um, just making a, a conscious choice to notice your emotions. It's a great part, first place to start. Well, thank you very much. Thank you it's a pleasure for having talking me. To you. I'm so glad it worked out. Yeah, it's great. Um, the book is amazing. Congrats on all your success. It's super well-deserved. I mean, what's what's next for you? I, do you feel like do you feel this pressure now? You got to like no, no, no. There are a couple like of things this. that I want to. <laughs> there are a couple of things that I want to yeah. do. If anyone, so I, I want to. Firstly, I want to write a children's book because mm. I just think it would be a beautiful, fun project around some of these ideas. I, I was interviewed by the New York Times on these ideas as they relate to children, and mm. I, I want to write a book for kids. So. If Jamie Lee Curtis is listening and you want to collaborate on her. Ah, she's your, she's <laughs> she's, your number one? Well, I, I think I just love her work. I love her work. So that's so that's something that I want to do. Um, one of the other things that I'm working on is taking these ideas and when often people struggle with how do I actually enact change? Right, like you a know, I'm stuck. Like what a, do I actually right. do? Mm -hmm. Well, what I'm working on at the moment is designing a... Um, computer program. So it's it's a kind of system-based application where people can input some of the issues that they're struggling with and will answer some questions about mm. that. And what it starts to do is to actually um, use that information to coach them through That's the cool. process. That's cool. So like yeah. in an app format. Yeah. So it's a combination of a of a kind of survey where people are completing information, but it but it's actually providing um, evidence-based coaching mm -hmm. feedback. Wow, to them, cool. so that's that's, that's cool. what I'm starting to work on. Yeah, 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 and you're you're on the road speaking all the time, right? I do a lot right. of speaking, mm -hmm. and you know, I do work with Harvard Medical School, and so I've um yeah, but but those are, those are things that I'm starting to explore now. Awesome. And if people want to connect with you, they're inspired by your message. Where's the best place yeah, for them to go? Yeah, please do. I love hearing from people. So I'm on all social media. I think mm -hmm. that gets out of gets out of hand as to what social media is, but I think I'm on I think I'm on everything. Um, but also on my website, the quiz is at susandavid.com forward slash learn. And if anyone wants to connect, there's there's information on my website as well. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. Dokey, excellent. We did it. I hope you enjoyed that one. Make a point to let Susan know what you thought of our conversation by hitting her up on Twitter at SusanDavid underscore PhD. And check out the show notes, the links, the resources related to today's conversation on the episode page at richroll.com to more deeply immerse yourself in the world of Susan and her work. And on that note, if you would like to learn more about your own emotional agility, something I highly suggest, check out her quiz at susandavid.com forward slash learn. Uh, once again, there is a brand new and revised edition of Finding Ultra that is now available in the US and Canada. Check it out on Amazon. 35% new material, really proud of it. We have signed copies at richworld.com for all my international friends. We ship worldwide. Uh, and I'm really excited about that. Uh, I'm excited about this book in general. And I really wanna share um, uh, what I put into it with all of you. And in addition, Plant Power Way Italia, our brand new cookbook, which is amazing, is now available for pre-order. 
Uh, reserve your copy now from your favorite online bookseller. And if you are a female, make sure to check out my second latest post on my blog for a chance to win a free spot on our upcoming retreat in Tuscany, which is going to be going down May 19th through 26th of this year, 2018. It's an extraordinary $5,000 value. The contest is only open through April 24th. So jump on it now for all the rules and the form to fill out and all that kind of good stuff. Again, it's on my blog, ritual.com, second most recent post. If you would like to support my work, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or on whatever platform you enjoy this content. As always, it really helps with the show's visibility, extending reach and audience. It helps me book the finest guests for future episodes. So it would mean a lot. It only takes you guys a minute. It doesn't cost you a thing. You can also support the show on Patreon at richroll.com forward slash donate. I want to thank everybody who helped put on the show today. Jason Camiolo for audio engineering, production, interstitial music. Michael Gibson for videography. Theme music, as always, by Analemma. And I've got a new team member here. Uh, Michael Gibson took a gig and I had to find a new video guy. So Blake Curtis is coming on board to handle future video projects as well as the graphic assets, which he uh, put together for this episode. So thank you, Blake. Thanks for the love, you guys. I'll see you back here soon. Peace, love, plants, namaste. Talk to you soon.